Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Brenda said to me, and I'll never forget these words. She said, Jess, if ever I'm found dead and it looks like suicide, don't believe it. It was a huge story because it had everything, murder, mystery, sex. I think they, they were very shocked that uh, there couldn't be an arrest. So far, I've looked into three theories surrounding the murder of Dr. Brenda Page. They've all been talked about in Aberdeen over the last four decades. I do know that we have had some very strange casualties also in Norway with regard to people who have involved themselves in the deep sea divers. Could Brenda have been killed because of her research into the dangers of deep sea diving? Or did her part-time job, whining and dining with businessmen, put her life at risk? There was the rumour that maybe it had been one of her... I wouldn't say, no, it's not clients. At that time, the escorts business, it was all businessmen, maybe oil men. But then, there was Brenda's volatile love life. He was almost a Jekyll and Hyde character. One minute he would be really loving and kind, and then the next minute he would be quite cruel, apparently. She was terrified of her husband at that time. In February 2015, the police visited Dr. Brenda Page's sister Rita at her home in Ipswich. They were there to tell her they were reopening their investigation into Brenda's murder after 37 years. Bringing it up again and trying again, we get our hopes raised. By applying new forensic techniques to material gathered at the crime scene, they were hoping to find new evidence. I always thought, well, they found something. They found DNA evidence. That's exactly what they want to have found. The Lord Advocate in Scotland, Frank Mulholland, who gave the go-ahead for the case to be reopened, said at the time, You can never look into the future, but I think it is important that you don't give families false hope. So we wouldn't be doing this unless we had a hope of reasonable possibilities of success here. It must be so frustrating for the family. I feel really, really sorry for them. You get on with it, don't you? There's nothing nothing you can do about it yourself. They're doing all they can up there, and you just cope. This is Murder in the Granite City, and I'm journalist Ruth Warrender. I've been investigating the murder of Dr. Brenda Page, an outstanding academic, since 2018. Knocking doors in Aberdeen led me to people I never thought I'd be able to speak to. The people who, it turned out, were able to give me crucial information. All right, we'll just try the next one. So this is opposite Brenda's home. 
the police knocked on my door, my parents' door at the time, straight out of the blue. In episode two, I told you about a photo fit of a man police wanted for questioning at the time of Brenda's murder. His image appeared on posters plastered around Aberdeen in the weeks following her death. Locals were quick to assume this man was a suspect. And they, they looked at each other and said, oh, this guy fits the description. And I said something along the lines, so you've taken a long time to arrive at my door. Was I one door not closer to finding who killed Brenda? We'll hear more from this man later. But for now, let's go back to what Brenda's friend and colleague, Dr. Jessie Watts, said about DNA. She thought when the police reopened the case, they must have found crucial evidence that could finally secure a conviction for Brenda's murder. I was always hoping that they would find something with DNA techniques. It's sad that things that Brenda started have now led on to some of these very, very capable techniques that could probably have solved her own murder in the day, had they been around then. In 2019, I wasn't able to speak to forensic scientists working on Brenda's case. But Tom Nelson, then Director of Forensic Services at the Scottish Police Authority, agreed to give me an insight into his line of work. Tom has since retired from his post. Back then, he was based at the Scottish Crime Campus HQ, just outside Glasgow. Here's what we'd recorded at the time. It's not what I was expecting, actually. It's a really impressive, massive, modern building. And I can see from here that there's a lot of security surrounding this. And rightly so, because all the major players in the criminal justice system are based here. So we've got the Crown Office, the Procurator Fiscal Service, which is the equivalent to the Crown Prosecution Service in England and Wales. We've got the National Crime Agency, HM Revenue and Customs, and the Scottish Police Authority's Forensic Services. They're all here under one very big and very high-tech roof. And I read before I came here, actually, that the whole concept is based on DNA. So let's go in and we'll meet Tom Nelson. I couldn't record in the building until I reached Tom's office. I asked him if he has a say in which cases are reopened. The Crown Office, Procurator Fiscal Service, Police Scotland uh, and ourselves will sit down and review these cases on a regular basis. We'll go back and we'll look at cases where obviously the case hasn't moved forward because there's been little or no evidence and we will look at the type of material that has been recovered. Uh, we'll look at the condition of that material and then from that we can then begin to understand is there any potential uh, that forensic evidence has moved on so much that we can actually reopen those productions and carry out an examination. So, to talk about the murder scene um, of our specific case, uh, Dr Brenda Pages, I know you can't comment on that today specifically, but going back to 1978 and to the murder scene, what would the forensics back then be looking at in our flat? What would be of interest? Uh, the Sanders would begin in, obviously in terms of the entry, been very careful as it went into that scene, uh, so they were following a common approach path, uh, so they weren't maybe uh, disturbing or contaminating any other parts of the scene. They'd be looking for maybe a blood pattern spatter on a wall if someone has been attacked. Uh, they'd be looking then for the blood 
uh, and recovering that blood uh, to see if it maybe was from a perpetrator. Uh, they're looking for a weapon. So if the person was murdered, say, for instance, uh, how were they murdered? What was used to murder them? Was it a knife? Uh, was it a hammer? Newspaper reports from the time say Brenda was killed with a blunt instrument. As far as I know, it's never been found. Obviously what they're trying to identify there, is there any potential material from a suspect who may be in that room and who may have taken part in that murder? We'll look for blood, we'll look for hairs, we'll look for uh, semen, we'll look for any other type of material that potentially could maybe identify someone from their DNA. We'll also look for fingerprints. So is there any fingerprints in that house, in that room, wherever that crime's been committed, that may help us identify who has been in that room. They may have been in the room innocently, but obviously we will want to try and identify who else could have been in that room at that time. And then obviously the police would then begin their investigation uh, to either eliminate that individual or obviously maybe move forward to question that individual about why they were actually there. So the same like subject matter would be taken, like the hair, the blood, everything. That hasn't changed. It's just what you do with it that's changed. We are now even more aware of what we can tell uh, from not only material you can see, but also material you can't see. Uh, So again, because of the advances of technology, uh, that's where in cold cases we're now able to look at material that maybe many many years ago we wouldn't have looked at because we wouldn't have known that DNA was coming along. Uh, So obviously years ago, as I said earlier, you'd be looking for a large bloodstain. Now we know we can get DNA from material we can't even see. So DNA profiling has been a major development in forensic science. I asked Tom to explain what DNA is. DNA stands for deoxyribonucleic acid, and it provides all the genetic information about you as an individual. So obviously whenever we carry out uh, an investigation and you actually recover uh, a a DNA stain, a profile, uh, which would be a crime scene stain, uh, but we may not have a person matched to that you know so that person that person may not be in the DNA database uh, that person may not be a suspect uh, and therefore we will have sitting on our database uh, a number of crime scene stains who we don't have an identifier for obviously if that individual at some later stage carries out another crime which is obviously recordable and we can legitimately take a DNA sample from that individual, you may get a hit on the DNA database. So unless a person has committed a crime, their DNA will not be on the DNA database. Nowadays, the police have a right to take a DNA sample from you if you are arrested and it's stored permanently. In 1978, that didn't happen. So we can assume the forensic scientists working on Brenda's case have extracted DNA from evidence gathered at the crime scene. But do they have a match for it? I asked Tom if any cold cases had been solved by matching DNA. We had a recent case there where uh, a young lady was murdered uh, over 20 years ago now uh, and we actually got a DNA hit uh, from someone who was arrested to a crime scene sample that we took at that time uh, and uh, obviously the DNA matched uh, and that has now gone through the court process. So this does happen where we may get a headache on the database from someone who's been arrested for another crime. And that's exactly how Angus Sinclair 
was convicted for the murders of Christine Eady and Helen Scott, 37 years after he committed the crime. The two 17-year-olds were last seen leaving the World's End pub in Edinburgh in October 1977. New forensic techniques were applied to evidence collected at the crime scene, and Sinclair was convicted in 2014. In the mid-1990s, police in Scotland were building up a DNA database, and Sinclair, who was in prison in Peterhead, volunteered to give a sample of his own DNA. It matched DNA found at the crime scene. Professor Lorna Dawson, head of the Soil Forensics Group at the James Hutton Institute in Aberdeen, was part of the forensic team whose evidence helped secure Sinclair's conviction. She was a student at Edinburgh University when the murders took place. We would go to our lectures every day. We'd walk down um, the same route past the World's End pub where, unfortunately, uh, Christine Eady and Helen Scott vanished from, were taken from, sadly, in 1977. Well, at that same time, it sent a real frizzen across the student community in Edinburgh. And for quite a while after that, we were very hesitant about walking home alone because for many, many years, that double murder was unsolved. 37 years later... Lorna examined tiny soil particles taken from Helen Scott's feet, using forensic techniques she herself pioneered, and found vital incriminating evidence. Combined with new techniques in DNA profiling, enough evidence was gathered to convict Angus Sinclair. So there were a few crucial aspects of evidence in this particular case, one being the soil that was on Helen's feet, which showed that she'd come into contact with both the grass verge and the wheat field where she was found dead. And also the biologists at Selmark, who were able to use what was a new technology at the time called Crime Light, which identifies specifically the locations where human DNA has been transferred, thus allowing a contact position to be sampled Now, these particular ligatures were used, unfortunately, to strangle both the victims. And in strangulation, the positioning of the knots and where the DNA is recovered from is vitally important for the prosecution and the biologist to interpret where the person likely tied the knots or where the person likely pulled that that ligature. So this was quite groundbreaking in this development so they could interpret the fact that Angus Sinclair had been the one that had tied these ligatures. So Lorna's skills in soil analysis and groundbreaking forensic techniques that allowed scientists to find microscopic traces of DNA were crucial in convicting Sinclair. And Lorna's forensic work was also responsible for helping secure a conviction for Christopher Halliwell. He murdered... 20-year-old Becky Gordon Edwards in Gloucestershire in 2003. Lorna was able to prove that Halliwell had used his garden tools to dig in the field where Becky's body was found. We looked at the soil on these garden implements 
and several of the aggregates on a couple of the items were consistent with the mineralogy and organic profile of the corner of the field where Becky was found. So this was very strong evidence that, in fact, that tool had been used to dig in the corner of that field. So the soil had persisted on these tools for that period of time. And thus this evidence was presented in court and it was also evidence that allowed it to go to trial. Christopher Halliwell was already in prison for, for the murder of Sean O'Callaghan when he's to trial for the murder of Becky Gordon Edwards. And in fact, strange that it was, he, he, he dismissed his defence and he presented his own case in court. So that, that was a rather strange experience to be questioned by him in court. But he was found guilty of, of the murder of Becky Gordon Edwards. His conviction brought closure to Becky's family. I still remember Becky's mum came up to me after I'd given my evidence and thanked me and my team for all the work we'd done uh, to help bring justice for her daughter. And that sort of moment makes it all worthwhile when you see the difference it really makes to, to the families and the fact that these cases are never closed and the police work extremely hard to never forget because the pain goes on for the families and loved ones of these victims. So they make sure that they try to bring justice. Back in 2019, Detective Inspector Gary Winter of Police Scotland's Major Investigations team gave me this statement. I believe that there are people who lived near Brenda on Allen Street who have possibly never spoken to the police before or at any great length. I don't think there's any untoward reason for this other than they didn't think their information would be useful because it didn't relate to Brenda's death itself. Forensic techniques and processes have changed dramatically over the past 40 years and we continue to use every resource at our disposal to explore information relating to this case. It is crucial someone is brought to justice for Brenda's murder. Please be assured we continue to ensure this happens. So, at the time, police clearly believed that there were people who lived near Brenda, in Allen Street, who had never come forward. I went there at the start of my investigation for this podcast and knocked some doors, but I couldn't find anyone who was there in 1978. However, I don't give up easily, and I knew I had to get back there for one last try. The only trouble was, the weather couldn't have been worse. Right, we'll just try the next one. So this is opposite Brenda's home. Wow, look at these. These are old time buzzers that would have been there at the time. You know, the ones that pull out. Oh, nobody seems to be in. But I was determined to find someone in the neighbourhood who was there when Brenda lived there. And I did find a family who lived at the top of the street. Hello. Who invited me in for a chat. Would you like to come in? That was the start of something quite extraordinary. Remember the man in the photo fit? 
the one with the shaggy hair and moustache. The man who was seen leaving Brenda's block of flats. Well, I found some crucial information about him. And it was Gail and Billy who started the ball rolling. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. So how long have you two lived here then? Since 1976. So that was two years before Dr. Brenda Page was killed. Yeah, well, It had been, yes. Yeah. And do you remember that time when, you know, the murder happened? Just It's literally a stone throw away, isn't it? Yes, we did. Um, when we come back from holiday, we were actually in holiday because it was a trades fortnight. And of course, a lot of Aberdonians go away then. When we came back, we were just blown away by um, what had actually happened. But it was a big shock. And uh, what date did it happen again? Um, it, so it was July the 14th, 1978. Yes. And we were away in holiday and probably come back about the 21st, being the end of the trades fortnight, to hear all about it. Yeah, I can, I can remember thinking um, when they were looking for someone with a moustache um, that I, I said to Billy, oh, thank goodness we weren't here because you would have been a prime suspect. <laughs> but um, we have a lock-up um, just sort of in the corner of Allen Street and my brother, he had his car parked in there and um, I, I don't know how it actually how it came about but he was actually interviewed by the police as well as a suspect um, so we we don't know, but they they seem to just be going in all avenues. Um, you know, it was more, more helping inquiries rather than being an actual suspect. I don't know, but yeah, yeah, You're probably right. No, no proof. You know, mm-hmm. no. Do you think it was maybe because of you know it was did his appearance fit the photo fit or? Yeah, well, in, in 1978, um, a lot of the people that age had moustaches. Um, so, you know, a lot of people fell into the same, um, I say, category as what the person they were looking for. Yeah, description, yeah. Mm-hmm. So do you think they were just kind of pulling anyone with that description aside and asking them questions? And Absolutely, yes. Yeah. That's what we'll do, yeah. yeah. So you were just lucky that you were in holiday. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. well, I don't know if it was lucky. You big know, sigh, but just big sigh of relief. Yeah. 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 So did they actually take him into the police station or did they? where did they go and question him? No, they, they interviewed him at my mother's house um, for quite some time. Um, he m- might be able to fill you in more about what line of questioning um, that was put to him. Um, but uh, yeah, it, it's... It wasn't, um, I think it was pretty hard going for him, actually. The police knocked on my door, my parents' door at the time, and uh, just straight out of the blue, no phone call, just arrived at the door. And I, I came downstairs, and they, they looked at each other and said, oh, this guy fits the description. And I said something along the lines, so you've taken a long time to arrive at my door. If you don't mind me asking, how old were you then? 27. So as you can hear, Gail kindly put me in touch with her brother Pat. He invited me round for a chat in his beautiful villa in the west end of Aberdeen. 
I asked him why police had interviewed him. The reason why they um, got in touch with me was that I had gone out with a girl at one point and she lived in the tenement where the murder took place. I was surprised to hear that Pat knew one of Brenda's neighbours. But I didn't expect to hear what he told me next. I had not been going out with her for some time, um, but she was interviewed by the... As far as I know, she was interviewed by the police for a number of days and was grilled. And obviously all the stories came out, who have you been with, blah, blah, blah. She didn't actually live in the tenement when I was going out with her, but she obviously um, since moved there. Um, so I was one of the names that came out, and obviously they tracked me down and interviewed me um, and asked me uh, some questions. They were interviewed, lasted probably about an hour, but I think they were pretty convinced by the end of the interview that I was not the person they were looking for. Um, the story, as I know, but behind it, the, the girl in question, I will won't mention. Um, um, moved to Aberdeen. I had gone out with her on a number of occasions. Um, she came from a farm just south of Stenhaven. She was a young girl, 18 years old, and um, wanted to move to Aberdeen for a, probably a bit of the action. And I'd gone out with her quite a few times. Um, hadn't seen her for uh, quite some time. But what I understood was that the, the lady that was murdered was supposedly an escort lady. And I, th I think the police's thoughts on it were that this young girl was involved. Why was a young girl of 18-year-old living in a, an apartment, um, a tenement, a flat in, in this building? The fact of the matter was her father had bought the apartment for her and she was just uh, living there. So were they implying that she was also an escort? They were making their quarries down that, down that, that line, I, I think. That, that's what I understand was, it, was the situation. I, I didn't see her for a long time afterwards and briefly discussed the situation with her, but she was reluctant to, to um, discuss it, and I can understand why. I couldn't believe what I was hearing. That speaks volumes about the attitudes towards women back in the 1970s. According to Pat, police involved in the original murder investigation seemed to believe that because an 18-year-old woman was living on her own, she may have been working as an escort with some connection to Brenda. I called William Austin, who ran the escort agency Brenda worked for, to check if he recognised the young woman's name. He didn't. That wasn't the only surprise Pat had for me that afternoon. Her boyfriend, at that particular time, who was also a friend of mine, was on holiday in Spain and was returning from Spain. And he and his, um, his friend were um, detained at the airport and taken into custody and grilled by the police. Um, for a period of time. Um, he, he had no information either. Did but they also have the same description? Yes, the description was dark hair and moustache. I understand there was someone seen in the vicinity or leaving the building early in the morning, a by, either by a milkman and or a taxi driver. And that was a description. Now, I think the police had to eliminate this person from their inquiries because obviously if, if someone was charged... Their defence, as far as I can see, their defence would have been 
that this person could have been the perpetrator. So, according to Pat, police didn't think the man seen leaving Brenda's block of flats was responsible for her murder. They wanted him to come forward so they could eliminate him from their inquiries. Did you ever find out at all who that man was that was leaving? No. Um, and your, your, your ex-girlfriend didn't have a clue either? I, I didn't ask her about that. Um, what, what I can say is that um, I talked to a friend of mine, and I'd heard the story before, who was a leading taxi owner in Aberdeen, and one of his taxi drivers um, had been at the tenement building, as far as I know, and... As far as I know, he had seen this this person leaving from from the from the tenement. Um, that person has now passed on because uh, I did ask about it, and he said he wasn't prepared to name the person, but he's now passed on. So you would not you would not be able to contact him. In the newspaper cuttings, it does suggest by the police that the person who left who had been seen leaving the apartment might be embarrassed to come forward, which then implied that maybe she was visiting someone for an affair or something, you know. That, that was a thinking at the time, yes, I have to say that, yeah. He may have been, as you say, in the building for reasons that other people might not want to know. As far as I know, he was never uh, traced. So, from what Pat told me, it seems the milkman wasn't the only one to have seen the man with the moustache leaving 13 Allen Street. Newspaper reports from the time also appealed for a taxi driver who was in the vicinity to come forward. This could be the man Pat's talking about, who I find out has since passed away. And I did track down the milkman, but his former neighbour told me he'd also passed away. Throughout my inquiries, I couldn't stop thinking about the man with the moustache. Who is he? Why didn't he come forward? What did he think when he saw his face on posters all over the city? Was he having an affair? What would you do in his situation? Would you have come forward? even if it could damage your private life? Knocking a few more doors in the vicinity of Allen Street led me to someone who was at the University of Aberdeen when Brenda was there. Bob's wife, June, who sadly passed away, would have known better than anyone what Brenda's relationship with Kit was really like. Nine months before Brenda was murdered, June travelled with her to Edinburgh to be the main witness in her divorce. I asked Bob how June felt when she heard her friend had been murdered. She was absolutely shocked, like the rest of them were, you know. And, um, of course, the, the police interviewed, and, uh, of course, they realised that she had been a mean witness, so she was told to, not to broadcast that at all, not to mention that in any details at all, just to be quiet about it. And um, the chaps in the lab sort of shattered her for quite a wee while. So, so you mean that they, you know, escorted her uh, from... Yeah, but she went, she, they were in the vicinity, you know, just to make sure that everything's all right. Brenda had a volatile relationship with her ex-husband, Dr Christopher Harrison, who she knew as Kit. 
I've heard from Brenda's family and friends that Kit had been violent towards her in the past. They told me she was frightened of him. Kit threatened her on the day of their divorce. He stalked her. She took out a restraining order against him. But it seems that Brenda still continued to see Kit even after they split. During my investigation, I've learned that police were interested in the movements of a dark green mini state car on the night of Brenda's murder. Journalist Graham Smith and a retired police officer who wishes to remain anonymous told me they believed the car belonged to Brenda's ex-husband. I do remember there was a lot of focus on a car um, which was parked in Stenhaven while the person who travelled to, to Edinburgh made the journey and he re-entered the car at Stenhaven on the way back. And I believe that car belonged to Kit Harrison. So why did Kit travel to Edinburgh that morning? He had been studying at the university there, so he could have been returning books to the library. Graham Smith told me that he believed Kit was questioned in connection with Brenda's murder, but was never charged. So what did he go on and do with his life? I've been told that around a year after Brenda's murder, he left Aberdeen to work first of all in Switzerland, and then he took up a research post at the University of Leiden in the Netherlands. But he has since returned to Aberdeen. He kept the house he once shared with Brenda. Kit Harrison has never spoken to any journalist about his ex-wife's murder. Four years ago, I went to his door to give him the opportunity to set the record straight. Okay, we're just uh, heading down to Kit's house. Um, I don't really know how this door knock's gonna go, but uh, here's hoping. It's a very cold, crisp, sunny day in Aberdeen today. Blue skies overhead. Um, so we're just walking down the street, um, just leading up to Kit Street. Obviously, it's just a, it's a lovely part of town, west end of the city. Uh, we've got lovely granite terrace houses, uh, terrace villas, should I say. They're, they're very nice, uh, beautiful buildings. Today, sparkling in the sunlight um, instead of their usual dull grey. Obviously, throughout my years as a journalist, um, I've knocked many doors. It's part of the job that I actually love doing. I love knocking on a door and, you know, finding out what the story is behind that door. Um, usually the real story. Usually you turn up and you, you don't actually, you can't even imagine or predict what is going to be said, what you're going to leave with. Uh, but this one, I must say, I did kind of take a while to get to sleep last night. Probably because uh, we've been warned so many times against knocking this door, knocking Kit, coming face to face with him. So this is where Brenda would have started her married life. Um, she would have probably walked these streets and gone up to the local shop and probably things might have been quite happy for her at some point at this, in this address. Um, but yeah, all um, blinds are shut. I think he kind of keeps them shut all the time, doesn't he? Set well back. 
surely if there's any answers as Dory can't be that much of a clue. Maybe he's just lying. So he didn't answer. I had contacted him initially by letter to let him know I was making this podcast, to give him the chance to take part. But he didn't reply. It seems that he didn't want to talk about the murder of his former wife. But someone who knew Brenda and Kit, who didn't want to be identified, told me this. Brenda told me he was involved with an American woman he'd met when he was studying at Harvard, before he met Brenda, and he'd had a child with her. I think he'd done a second PhD and he was graduating from Edinburgh. Brenda and him had kind of got back together and had reconciled to some degree. This was after she divorced him and not long before she died. They'd become friendly and she was going down to the graduation, but then it turned out this other woman he'd had a relationship with was going too with her son. There seemed to be a dispute between them because it seemed that they were getting back together again. The University of Edinburgh confirmed that the graduation day took place on the 20th of June, 1978. That's just two weeks before Brenda was murdered. But Brenda apparently decided not to go when she found out that Kit had also invited an American woman and their son. I'm not sure if Brenda was finding out for the first time that Kit had a son from a previous relationship. But I do know that he was a student at Harvard University in America between 1967 and 1970. So the relationship could have been from then. I called Brenda's sister Rita to ask if she'd heard any of this. Did you know anything about Kit potentially having a son? No, I didn't. First time I've heard that. First time you've heard that. I mean, it, we just heard um, from somebody who who knew Brenda, and she she was saying that uh, Brenda had kind of reconciled a little bit with Kit, and she was intending to go down to Edinburgh for his graduation. Do you remember about the graduation? Vaguely. Yeah. So you do remember something about a graduation. I remember there was a bit of controversy about who went. So Brenda was saying to you that there was something about who was going to this graduation that yeah. was obviously causing upset. Yeah. Uh-huh. So, so what we found out was the reason there was upset surrounding that was because it was another woman and Kit's son. Well, I do remember that He did have a friend from when he was in America, I think. She did mention that he had an American friend. So so you haven't heard that from anyone else before? The police? Nobody else? No. No. You should be able to trace it, shouldn't you? And I did. Hi there, my name's Ruth Warrender. Sorry for the random. So I did manage to trace the American lady, but she told me she had no information and didn't want to speak to me. Right. Okay, thank you. Bye. Okay, so what I've told you so far was all in the original podcast that launched in March 2020, just before the COVID pandemic locked down the UK. 
on the very day episode three was about to drop, I got a major tip-off. I can confirm that by eight o'clock this morning, a 79-year-old man was arrested in connection with the murder of Dr Brenda Page. Dr Page was murdered at her home address at 13 Allen Street on the 14th of July, 1978. Brenda was 32 at the time of her murder. It had a massive impact on the city in 1978 um, and a massive impact on Brenda's family. Detectives say they're now keen I couldn't believe what I was hearing. I ran round to tell my producer, Jill. He's been arrested! He's been arrested! What? Join me next time to find out what happened in the trial. Please help us spread the word on Brenda's story by rating, sharing and talking about this podcast. You can subscribe to hear other episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Murder in the Granite City is presented by me, Ruth Warrender and produced by Jill Davis. Sound design is by Sean Kerwin and the music is composed and performed by David Hearn. It's a news broadcasting production for the Scottish Sun.